relationship to God and about what duty God requires of us. What does God require of us? <laughs> An important question. Well, Jesus tells us what God requires of us is, in a nutshell, loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. What is loving your neighbor as yourself? Well, what is not loving your neighbor as yourself? Loving your neighbor is helping your neighbor who is in distress. But it's also, I mean, the, the, the good Samaritan, obviously. But it's also teaching your neighbor who's in ignorance, your children who are growing up and need instruction, your students perhaps need teaching, um, anyone who needs to know anything or fools who need instruction. This is what our mouths are for and this is, this is loving your neighbor. But also celebrating with your neighbor who's delighting in something. That's loving your neighbor as well. Or just making and marketing a really good chicken sandwich is loving your neighbor. In other words, loving your neighbor is all of life properly lived. And it all involves hearing and speaking. This man cannot hear and he cannot speak. A bomb could go off behind his back and he wouldn't know it. He can't hear at all. He is unable to, his, in, his inability to speak, of course, is, is related to his inability to hear. Uh, deaf people cannot hear themselves, and so their speech is affected. And it says in the passage here that he had a speech impediment. He wasn't completely mute, but he had a speech impediment. Why? Because he can't hear. If you're deaf from birth, you can't speak at all because you've never heard yourself speak. You, you've never heard anyone else speak. We, our ability to speak is related to what we can hear, and when we can't hear later in life, it affects our ability to speak. So he has a speech impediment. We learn speech from hearing it. And we, and we call this inability to hear and inability to speak a disability. We call it a handicap because it's not the way things ought to be. You're not just differently abled, although you may develop other abilities because you're compensating for these disabilities, but not being able to hear, not being able to speak is a deficiency. It's a disability. It's uh, not the way things ought to be. Uh, we should be hearing and speaking people. And so he suffers as a result. Uh, he doesn't enjoy many of the things that God wants us, created us to enjoy. And no doubt he, and of course he suffers socially and he suffers economically. It doesn't say here that he was begging in the street, but you can be sure at that time, if he's unable to speak and unable to hear, he's suffering economically. Unless he's, you know, part of the one-tenth of one percent who were rich at the time, but we're not told that either. So we can assume he's suffering in these ways. But more so, he cannot live the breadth and depth of the life that God gave us to live. But in him, we see the Savior's great need. Jesus does this thing for a particular man who had a particular physical need, but it's recorded in Scripture for our benefit because it's a picture of the sinner's great need. People on their own, people in need of God's grace. 
The man is deaf to God's creation. Sinners are deaf to God's voice. They're deaf to the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not understand, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned, the natural man. This man cannot hear God's glory in the world. Sinners cannot hear God's glory in the word. We are all born this way. We all come into this world not the way we're supposed to be. That is why you're dissatisfied. That's why you're unfulfilled. That is why you are so often miserable, because you are not the way you're supposed to be. Even we in Christ are being sanctified. We're growing into Christ. And to the extent we are not yet like Christ, which one day we will be in glory, we are not the way we ought to be. And thus, dissatisfaction, unfulfillment, misery. People have opinions about God. People have opinions about God, who He is, whether He is. But they're cut off from His glory. It's like, it's like having an opinion about Spain. Okay, there's a certain number of things you can learn about Spain and develop an opinion. But have you been there? Okay, well, your, your opinion about Spain is limited to that extent. Well, people have opinions about God. Opinions are worth a nickel or a dime each, right? Just opinions. But if you don't know God, if you're cut off in crucial respects from his glory to the, to the shining forth of his excellences, then your opinion is worth accordingly. People are deaf to him in his world and deaf to him in his word. The world as it is is not the way it ought to be because worldlings are not the way they ought to be. God created us in his image. What does that mean? Ephesians tells us, it says we were created in righteous, to be in righteousness and true holiness. Righteousness, to be like him in his character. Holiness, to act like him in his place. And he made us for himself. He made us to love him in worship and to, to, to love him in friendship. He made us to be listening to him and praising him. But sin disables us from these things. All our righteous, as, as uh, 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 Elder Farkas said in the, uh, in the preparing us for the confession of sin, even our righteousnesses, even our obediences are, he explained, but Isaiah says it, 64.6, are as filthy rags. Even, even our obediences are stained and disabled by sin. And so life without God is hard. Life without God is is even disastrous. Imagine, imagine having to eat, not knowing even the basics of nutrition that you take intuitively for granted. I remember, maybe you saw the Far Side cartoon as well with two cavemen. Of course, were there cavemen? Originally, there was Adam and Eve, and I think some people sort of were brutalized into a caveman state uh, in some parts. But anyway, the cartoon is not concerned about this, but I mentioned that just so you know I'm orthodox. But uh, there's these two cavemen, right? And at the beginning, and, and they're biting, trying to figure out what to eat. And, and, and one of them, he bites a rock. No, the other one crosses it off the list. He bites a tree. 
No, that's uh, cross it on the off. Bite some fruit. Oh yeah, that works, right? Your day would be hard not knowing even the basics of basic nutrition. Try to run a business without knowing the the very ideas of profit and loss, uh, revenue and expense, pricing and demand. Say you're charged with playing and winning a football game and you're convinced that it is essentially rugby. You're not going to be doing very well in that game. That is essentially the godless secular life. People try to thrive. They want to be happy. Who doesn't want to be happy? But they're cut off from the voice of God, cut off from the author of life, even hostile to God and and the way of life. God... God can say what he wants. I'm going this way. You're going to run into a a wall. Too late, right? This is the secular life. Deaf to God. Hostile to God. The natural man hears the law of God when it is read. But though it registers in his ear, it doesn't touch his conscience. Psalm 119 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. But the natural man hears it, and he hears other people's sin problems. Or or he hears moralism, life's rule book, something like this. Or legalism, a a better way way of getting to heaven by getting all your stuff in order, getting all your ducks in a row. Uh, This is not the gospel, but this is what they hear if they don't just hear gibberish. The natural man hears the gospel when it is preached, but it does not warm the heart. It's not received as good news. There's no conviction of sin, no thrill at the remedy of sin, no sorrow over one's own sin, and thus no joy over salvation. But in your witness, remember, what is impossible with man is possible with God. People are naturally dead in their trespasses and sins, but God, but God, is rich in mercy. Ah, the but gods of Scripture. (laughs) Good news comes after those two words. Bad news, bad news, but God, good news. So we see also in this passage the Savior's great care, man's great need, this man's great need, the sinner's great need as sinners, and the Savior's great care. What Jesus does here in this passage is rather odd. And when Jesus does something odd, we sit up and listen because it's there for a reason. He's doing it for a reason. So what is the reason? Elsewhere, just a word from him is enough, right? Be clean. And someone is clean. Your daughter is well. And they look into it. And from that moment, his daughter was well. But here, he puts a lot more work into it. Jesus shows his personal love for sinners here. Uh, He takes the man aside and deals with him privately. This is the love of Christ. I'm dealing with you. I'm not putting on a show. This is not an opportunity to display the power of God breaking into the world. Well, that would be fair enough. He does that elsewhere. Fine. But here he removes that entire aspect. Verse 36, he says, and don't tell anyone I did this. And they go off and do it anyway. They can't help themselves. 
He's focused on the man and the benefit to this man. And he chooses this particular method involving his fingers and involving spit for the man's sake. Remember, the man is deaf. He can't hear Jesus describe what he's doing. He can't hear Jesus say what he's about to do for him. So he makes visible what he is doing so the man can understand. And he looks up to heaven. He wants to show the man that this is something God is doing. Uh, It's not something that Jesus is anticipating that nature is doing. God is doing. So he looks up to heaven. Christ embodies here Psalm 123. And Psalm 123, like all the Psalms, points to Christ. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. So Jesus looks to heaven, and he sighs. With a great sigh, he does this. Christ is not just processing a request the way a doctor takes you in, says, take two of these and call me in the morning, and puts you out, goes to the next person, processes people. Jesus is engaged. His heart is engaged. He is moved for this man, this particular man. It's personal care. He shows personal care, not only for the physical benefit of this man, but his spiritual benefit, his heart relationship with God. He reaches through his ears, as it were, to his heart, which is always his ultimate goal. Jesus' heart is always for your heart. And that reaching through the ears to the heart is the supernatural work of Christ. Only Christ can change the heart. We do marvelous things today with the body. Some of you are in medicine Some of you hope to be in medicine. What we can do with blindness and deafness and speech therapy, but the heart is another matter. Christ must work or nothing will work. But he employs natural means to reach our hearts. It's not the natural means that change our hearts, but he uses natural means, sometimes supernatural means. Uh, And my heart was strangely warmed. He does that. But sometimes also natural means, people speaking, people doing, Christ working through these things. And you can can remember now the, the personal means that God used to change you, to reach you. He placed you in a particular family. It's no accident that you were in the family that is yours. He is the author of life, the author of spiritual life, the author of physical life. He knit you in a particular mother's womb and brought you forth into a particular family, Uh, a human, all-too-human family with all their foibles and their their shortcomings and their virtues and and their blessings. And they they took concrete steps to raise you up and direct you to Christ, nurture you in Christ, years of labor. And... God also placed unexpected people, unexpected events in your life that were no accident. I remember when, when I was in high school, one March break, I went to Italy, and I was, I, we were touring the catacombs, and there was a monk there. And the monk said, I don't know what he said, but at some point he said something about honoring your mother and father. And 
1979, I was 17 years old, and I sit there and I went, yes, I should honor my mother and father. That was the Holy Spirit in me. That's what we call prevenient grace, grace that God uses ahead of your conversion. But I knew there was the Spirit of God speaking in my heart that I should honor my mother and father because that's God's word. I didn't know God's word, but I, but I knew that was from God's word. That just happened. And when I, when I was at University of Toronto, I probably told you the story before. I went into a particular building. It was Knox College. Uh, and I said, what's this building for? It was a nice old stone building. I didn't have classes there. And the lady at the front desk said it was a theological seminary for training ministers. I said, oh. Uh, and she says, at some point, do you go to church? I said, oh, no, I don't go to church. And she, says, she said, well, you should. You really should. And I knew in my heart I should. That was the Spirit of God, right? Using natural means to bring me to himself. And I saw, and the next week I went to church, and it has never changed. Uh, one thing led to another. Uh, the Lord applies comforts in your life, and he applies discomforts in your life as means of bringing you to himself with many other means. And, of course, he speaks an effectual word. Uh, he doesn't give you an, an audible voice as you're lying in your bed, but he speaks through other people as I am speaking to you now. But nonetheless, it is God's word to your ears through natural means. Maybe the reading of the word. Maybe somebody speaking the word. But he does it. He does it. And you, you brothers and sisters, can be the means to other people. You can be that unexpected person. You can be that Christian friend. Just a word in passing, maybe. Just a word. As somebody has shared a word, you know you really should. Uh, are you a church-going person? No, you should be. You've done something. God can use that. God can use a mustard seed. He can use an avalanche. He can use you. Or maybe a repeated confrontation. Be bold. As appropriate, but be bold. Maybe somebody in your life needs a repeated confrontation. That, that, hound, you, that hound of heaven, and you can be that hound of heaven. Or maybe it's a weekly Bible study. You don't need the elders' permissions to have a weekly Bible study. Would that all God's people had weekly Bible studies, right? So Jesus still opens the ears of the heart. He opened your heart. He opened my heart. He can open any heart in his time. That should be our confidence. If he does not, well, if it's all up to your neighbor, you may as well save your breath. Isn't this why we stay silent? Because we think it's up to our neighbor. And we look at our neighbor's capacities and we're downcast, as we should be. Uh, because we're thinking of human capacities instead of God's marvelous grace. People's hearts are not naturally warm to God. As for their minds arguing people into Christ, people are not that rational. They're not that rationally led. And you might say, oh, that, when you catch your breath, that is so insulting. How can you say that? I offer to you as evidence political campaigns and commercial advertising. 
Is it like sitting in a graduate seminar? Is it like sitting with Socrates, arguing and hearing arguments? No, it's, it's emotional appeals. It's sub-rational. And so if it all depends on your nation, neighbor's decision-making power, uh, you will use sub-rational methods. And this is what uh, some uh, churches and traditions do. Emotional and emotionally manipulative techniques and appeal to fear. Yeah, you don't want to go to hell. There is a hell. We shouldn't want to go to hell. Hell is real. But if all you are is afraid of hell, that's not a conversion. Let me tell you about a, an old Scotsman named Andrew Carnegie, great steel magnate and philanthropist from what the 1920s and in Pittsburgh. And with his money, he bought, he built this huge cathedral-esque Presbyterian church that rose high into the sky. And in Pittsburgh, where I went to seminary, they called it Andrew Carnegie's Fire Escape. He got religion, he got, he got religious, but it was just, well, you know, he was a businessman. He's aware of, you know, his, his, his points of exposure and vulnerability, and he looked at hell at some point, or stories about hell, and said, maybe I should build a big church, and, uh, and that'll, that'll be that. Sometimes, yeah, fear of hell simply can scare you into religion. It can scare you into religious activity, uh, Christian affiliation, but it can't get you into Christ. Not on its own. Uh, greed. Some preachers appeal to greed. Uh, greed here. Name it and claim it. You, you should be rich. If, if, you're, if you're a Christian, you should be prosperous. Uh, look at me. I have a jet and these nice things, and you can too. Or maybe it's, it's greed in the hereafter. We're poor here. We'll always be poor here, but by and by, there'll be pie in the sky. That isn't the conversion. That's a calculation. Uh, or sentimentalism, helped along by just the right music and just the right lighting. Uh, if it all depends on our emotions and, and, and our, our what's inside of us to generate a decision, that's what it comes down to. But that is not the power of the gospel, brothers and sisters. What were these miracles for? Their, their chief role at this time, it's not like miracles happened all the time back then. No, if you, if, if you, if you, look, you don't have to look too closely. There are specific times in the Bible where miracles happened, right? The parting of the Red Sea, the Exodus, uh, the, the uh, certain prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and this. Here, Jesus is showing the power of the gospel. As I said, breaking in, the Savior has, 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 has become incarnate and arrived in the creation to redeem. And, and he comes with power, not with rhetorical appeals, but with power, the power to deliver on what he's promising. And, this, and what does he do? He makes the deaf to hear, the, 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 the blind to see, and he raises the dead. This is nothing we can do, something he does. The kingdom of God comes with power, and these other things are not power. The power of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is resurrection power. It is recreating out of nothing. In the beginning, God spoke and the world came into being. In the new beginning, which is the redemption, God speaks 
and out of death comes life. This is the gospel. Uh, Earlier in the service, we read from Ezekiel 36. I was going there. He says, what does he say in that passage? I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. There's the gospel. God removes your dead, unresponsive heart that can do nothing as far as heart work is concerned and gives you what a heart ought to be, a heart of flesh. And then, uh, and then in the next chapter, Ezekiel 37 Ezekiel is there in the, in, the, in the valley of dry bones. Dry bones, my friends. No life. Not just people who, I don't know, they sure look dead, but they may not be dead. They may just be mostly dead, which is not the same thing as dead. No, dry bones. And Ezekiel says to the Lord, he says, can these bones live again? And the Lord says, watch. And the bones stood up and they came together and, 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 and they gathered flesh and became living beings again. And that is the hope of the gospel. And Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus who was three days in the grave, three days just to show that he was really dead. He's dead. He stinketh, the scripture tells us. And Jesus comes up to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And what happened? Lazarus came out. He came back to life. He was dead and then he was alive. And then he came out. And Lazarus is standing there in the sunshine with Jesus. Not because he made a decision. Well, he did make a decision, didn't he? After the Lord gave him life and put him on his feet, he decided to leave the cape of Really, what else is he going to do? What sane, living person is going to say, no, no, I'm good. I'm just going to camp out here a while. No, you get out. You see Jesus. You see life out there, out into the sunshine. But only because the decisive thing happened. Jesus gave him life. He raised him from the dead. That is the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. And this, brothers and sisters, this is your confidence. The grace of God by the word of God. And does that involve reasoning? Yes, it does. Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah begins his prophecy by saying, God saying through Isaiah, come let us reason together. The scriptures are full of reasonings. But it is reasoning that directs people to the life-giving word of God. Does it involve love and mercy? Yes, it does. Jesus healed people. Jesus was full of love, not just words, good words, true words, but full of love and mercy and compassion. But love does not boast. Love doesn't draw attention to itself. It directs people to the Savior whose name is love. And so, brothers and sisters, witness Tell people about what you have. Tell people about the hope that you have in in Jesus. Uh, It may not be uh, on the the subway or on the street, but whoever God puts in your path as appropriate, speak as befits the moment. Witness as one who hears God, who knows God, and therefore Witness as one who ministers the love of God and speaks the gospel of God. Witness, however, knowing that what is impossible with man, who is deaf and mute, 
is possible with God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we stand before you, living beings whom you brought from the womb, but also brought to life by the word of life. We can call you Father because you made us sons of God. Father, we we pray to you in confidence, of confidence of our peace with you, in confidence of being heard by you, in confidence of being blessed by you because of the life you gave us. Father, we pray that as we lead our lives and especially as our lives intersect with those who do not know you, those who are strangers to you, that we would be ready with the word in and out of season. Uh, Lord, give us utterance. Give us the right word to say. May we know your word so that we may speak it and let your word do your work. And Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.